This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good morning. The first reading is taken from Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19 through to 34. And, you know, these are the words of Jesus. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, I tell you, you do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not touch and will he not much more clothe you, you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. What will we eat or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive for the, for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second lesson is taken from two parts of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 5, verses 8 to 10, and chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down them and worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. These are the statutes and ordinances that you must diligently observe in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to occupy all the days that you live on the earth. You must demolish completely all the places where the nations whom you are about to dispossess served their gods on the mountain heights, on the hills, and under every leafy tree. Break down their altars, smash their pillars, burn their sacred poles with fire, and hew down the idols of their gods, and thus blot out their name from their places. You shall not worship the Lord your God in such ways. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes as his habitation to put his name there. You shall go there, bringing you there your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your donations, your votive gifts, your free will offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks. And you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your households together, rejoicing in all the undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please do take a seat. Hopefully there's an outline of the sermon, the words I'm going to say, uh, that you received on the way in the door. But I want to start this morning uh, with not faith, but doubt. Now, I'm not talking about the supposedly rational skepticism of the atheist, but the very common experience amongst believers and doubters alike of frustration at the invisibility of God. I've had numerous conversations with people over the years who've said things like, I'd like to believe. I'm ready for God. I wish I had the faith that others have. So where is he? Why doesn't he make contact with me? And I've talked with long, lifelong believers. I'm one of them myself who've ached for a more first-hand encounter with God, who've wondered why he hasn't been more tangibly evident in their lives. See, there's no doubt that human beings have a deep desire for God, a God-shaped hole, as some writers have called it, although I like to call it a God's stomach, because it's, we really have, it's not just a hole, it's a hunger or a thirst, we might say, for God. We want to know the source of all things. We want to know that there is meaning and goodness and justice. We want to be enfolded, embraced 
by the heartbeat of the universe itself, the love that shaped the universe from itself from before the dawn of time. We long for that, but we are time-bound, earth-bound creatures used to the physical and the tangible. We relate by seeing and touching, by being present with one another, though we've found ways of, <laughs> ways of substituting that over the last couple of years, haven't we? So how can we connect with a being who is invisible? Why is it that the one we seek, the one we long to know, the one who's making our God's stomachs ache is so hidden? The American Christian writer uh, Philip Yancey, the author of a terrific book called What's So Amazing About Grace, puts it this way, how do I relate to a God who is invisible when I'm never quite sure he's there? Our experience of seeking God can be something like going to a friend's house only to find that the lights are switched off, the curtains are drawn, and the mail is piling up on the front step. You knock on the door and you think you might hear something, but you can't be sure. If the person's in, well, they're hiding. They're not answering. And so in our frustration and our impatience to fill our God's stomachs, we find theological fast food instead. We drop into the fast food outlets or the religious equivalents of the fast food outlets. We find God substitutes. We create artificial gods to meet our needs. And sometimes we even call them by this name. We call them gods, although sometimes we effectively worship them without calling them that, especially in the more secular West. And we make them to look like the things we know and recognize, things we're comfortable with, the creatures and the objects of the world around us. It is to these things that we give our hearts. It is to these things that we cling because we can see them and touch them. We know, of course, deep down that these things, these creatures and objects cannot be gods, not really. But if the true God is invisible, we might argue, what alternative do we have? The second of the Ten Commandments gives us a very clear no to God's substitutes. You shall not make for yourself an idol, says God, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. In the account we are reading of the Ten Commandments from the book of Deuteronomy, we have the people of Israel on the verge of entering the promised land. And Moses is here reminding them. He's telling the story of what happened years ago back at Mount Sinai. The story that we hear uh, told to us firsthand in the book of Exodus. So this is like the, the repeat for the new generation. Uh, Moses saying, look, you're going to have to carry these commands with you into the promised land. And in that land, there will be all sorts of idols. You, the people, are going to come across all sorts of cults and sects, the sects of the Canaanites and the, with their bowels and their Ashtaroths, their shrines and their temples. And, you know, you'll be tempted to grasp onto these visible and manageable deities. You will think, you know, they get to actually walk up to, to, to an actual thing. They have a face to stare on, an image to look at when they worship God. And the people of Israel had form on this. 
Even after they were rescued from Egypt by the Lord God, they got sick of waiting around the mountain for Moses. In fact, that, that, that was back at the scene when, they were, when, when the, the law was first given. And there they were, waiting for Moses to come down, having talked to God. And Moses' brother Aaron, do you remember, made them a golden what? A golden calf, right? Out, out of their, their jewellery. And I mean, they, they saw it happen. They saw Aaron go round with the bag to collect their earrings and nose rings and bracelets. And they saw him uh, melt it all down. And they saw him craft the calf. And yet they knew it was a made-up God. And yet they sang and they danced and they cavorted and bowed down and worshipped it. And then Moses came down the mountain with the stone tablets which had been written on by the finger of God himself. And was so angry that when, when he saw this scene that he smashed them at the foot of the mountain dramatic stuff so this command is necessary because it is precisely what the israelites will be tempted to do and indeed have already done and it is precisely what we will be tempted to do in our impatience and frustration with god the command is very helpful in that it tells us what an idol is it tells us that an idol will have a form and it will have a function Whereas the Lord God does not have a visible shape, he has no body that we can look upon him, no outline. He is invisible and he is everywhere. The idol has a form. It resembles something in the created world. It could look like an angelic being or an animal. It's the result of human beings saying, you know, I like to think of God in this way. And of making that thing that they like. But it's not just making images that's the problem. This is not uh, tracked against art itself, right? No, the making of images is, is neither here nor there. It's what happens next, what happens with the images of the things in the creation. The bowing down before them and worshipping them as if they were God. It is endowing these material and created things with qualities only the true God has, and giving them the honor that only the true God deserves. Now, to bow down to something, whether literally or metaphorically, shows that you've given your heart to it. As Martin Luther says, if your heart clings to something else and expects to receive from it more good and help than from God, and does not run to God, but flees from him when things go wrong, then you have another God. You have an idol. Having an idol is giving the longings of your heart to something other than God. And God does not want you and I to do that. Why? Because he is rightly jealous for our worship. If you're following the outline, I'm on point three. God is rightly jealous for our worship. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, he says. And to back this up, he makes a promise to judge this command. To reject him has dark and ongoing consequences. While to remain in relationship with him produces a massive blessing. A blessing that exceeds the consequences by three to a thousand. There's an interesting comparison with the generations there. Uh, his blessing goes on for a thousand generations, which in the ancient world you might as well have said forever and ever. Now at this point, 
I don't know about you, but we tend to, I, I tend to recoil when I, recoil when I hear the word jealousy because the, jealousy can be a very destructive emotion in human beings. It reminds us perhaps of the over-controlling lover who won't let his partner out of his sight. Shakespeare, who called jealousy the green-eyed monster, wrote a whole play about its destructive effects. Does anyone know the name of the play? Othello, well done. Uh, and of course, it doesn't end well, does it? Right? But there is a right jealousy, just as there's a right anger. There's a jealousy which protects that which is true and just. I hope that, for example, our, our police and our lawyers are jealous to protect justice in our nation and our politicians too. A good hospital is jealous for its cleanliness. A married couple are rightly jealous to protect the exclusivity of their bond. In fact, it is a mark of their true love for each other. Is God's jealousy then a right jealousy? There are four reasons that it is. Four reasons. Firstly, he deserves our worship as the one true God. He deserves it. And so he is rightly jealous for it. The Lord deserves exclusive worship because of what he has done and continues to do. He's got a very impressive CV. Alone, he created the universe. And alone, he redeems his people. And alone, he continues to uphold the world by the word of his power. As Revelation chapter 4 says, we go into the throne room of heaven and all the creatures of the world are gathered around that throne and they're singing a song endlessly. And it's this in the book of Revelation, you are worthy, our Lord, to receive glory and power and honor. Why? Because you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, he didn't share this task with some other de deity. This was his. And because of it, he deserves our worship exclusively. He is rightly jealous for it. But also, not only does he create, he also redeems his people. He was the one who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, out of the house of bondage, as he says, and reminds them here in the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God, I'm not someone else. I'm the one who brought you out, who freed you, who gave you your liberty. It was not Baal who did it, or Apollo, or the Philistine god Dagon. His name always sounds to me like a brand of de deodorant. You can imagine it, can't you? Dagon uh, keeps you dry for hours and hours. This was the Philistine God. And only he, only the Lord our God sent his son, the Lamb of God. And only he dies for sin. Only he gives us the hope of new life. Only he beats death. He deserves our worship. And so he is rightly jealous for it. But it's worth pointing out the flip side of this too, that the idols are a sham. And so God is jealous for our worship because when we worship idols, we worship things that are not. We worship false gods, not only contenders to the true gods, but the things themselves that are not God. The idols that we make are just plain false. When we worship images made to look like created things, we, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, exchange the truth about God for a lie. We are foolishly falling for a falsehood. The Bible, you know, relentlessly mocks idol worship. But I have to say the Bible's not a very funny book. But it does contain humor 
And a lot of its humor is directed against the worship of idols. Because the worship of idols is not only offends God's jealousy, but it is stupid. It is plain stupid. How can you cut down a tree, cook your dinner with one half, and turn the other half into an idol that you then pretend has transcendent and eternal qualities? You know where it came from. How can you get your gold and silver and melt it down and make an image of a, of a calf of all things and then cavort yourself around it? How ridiculous. And yet it is a tragedy that we're so, though it is stupid and foolish, it's also a tragedy that we're so easily persuaded to give our hearts and our hopes to created things that cannot do what we hope they will do, cannot give us what we want them. They will not fill our God's stomachs. Worshipping idols is a bit like what happens in The Wizard of Oz when, when our heroes turn up at Oz hoping that they will have the, their heart's desires met and they discover that actually The Wizard of Oz is a sham, that really the, the claim to power and transcendence that he makes is entirely horror, hollow. The idols that we make, that we cling to so dearly, they, they do not love us, they do not save us, and they cannot answer our prayers. Now, we give children teddy bears as a substitute for human contact, don't we? We want our children to sleep on their own and to learn to comfort themselves. So we give them soft toys to cling to. But we all know, even the children, that the teddy bear is not a real bear. Now, um, I've just brought someone in to help me with this. This this is my teddy bear. Um, this was given. This is 51 years old, and now I can't even remember his name other than he was just Bear. Although my daughter now has him, Freya has him, and calls him Michael, which is just a bit weird, don't you think? Um, now I don't think it's offensive to say that this this bear is not a real bear. He's a teddy bear. Let alone let alone he's not a real person. Though I've talked to him in my time. A relationship with this stuffed toy can never take the place of a real human relationship. We know this. And yet when it comes to God, even we supposedly sensible adults accept substitutes for the real thing. Whether it be our houses, our careers, our reputations, or just money itself. These God substitutes cannot give us what we long for. Pursuing them consumes us, and yet they do not return our devotion. The great Australian poet, Les Murray, once wrote these lines that I've quoted here before. I've never forgotten them. He was a Christian himself, and he said, The true God gives his flesh and blood. Idols demand yours off you. There's a sharp lesson in that, isn't there? Not only are idols false, not only is it foolish to follow them, but when we follow these empty gods, these hollow deities, we find ourselves consumed. The Lord God is also jealous for our worship because he has bound himself to love us. The Bible speaks a number of times of the, as the Lord God being the husband of his people, involved in a 
set of promises, a relationship, a covenant relationship with his people, a relationship which involves promises and commitments. It's an image we hear in the New Testament too. Jesus loves his bride, the church, and lays down his life for her. It's a powerful image because it reminds us that like a bridegroom, God has made promises to love. He has committed himself in faithfulness to his people. Steadfast love to a thousand generations, he declares in this very command. And that promise to love, as we discover, goes all the way to the cross in the broken body and the flowing blood of Jesus. That is the shape of the divine love, the divine and costly love that he would redeem us. No idol ever died for our sins. Only the true God gives his flesh and blood. And he is jealous. He's jealous for our worship because he is committed in his love. And lastly, the Lord is jealous because only he can reveal himself. When we make idols, we make God just as we'd like him to be. We make him on our own terms. We attempt to constrain and contain God by making him look like something that we choose. We deny him his freedom to tell us who he really is, his freedom to self-identify. We know how important it is to let people say who they are. We know that of human beings. And yet we frequently do not allow God to do the same. Now, we do not build statues, we may not build statues, but whenever we say, as I said before, I like to think of God as we're constructing God as we like him and not as he really is. We know how offensive this is in personal relationships. And we Australians often do this with people who have non-English names. Apologies if you are from overseas and you have a non-English speaking name, but uh, this is the sort of thing Australians do and I know you're familiar with it. I remember meeting a woman called Eva, E-V-A, Eva, from Slovakia. And I asked her what her name was and she said, Eva. And so I said, oh, you mean Eva. Correcting her, good old Anglo-Saxon male, putting the world straight as always. Well, that's the sort of thing we do in making idols with God. In the second commandment, God says to you and me, I will reveal myself to you as I really am on my terms. When you make and worship idols, you are projecting your own wishes and prejudices on a big stream and you will not know me, not truly. But if you come to where God reveals himself, you will truly know him. As John's gospel says, no one has ever seen God. That's our invisibility problem right there. The Bible acknowledging it. But it then says, it is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Jesus is, as Paul says, the image of the invisible God. He is the visible and tangible place where we may come to worship the true God because God has made himself truly known there. Despite all our doubts about whether the invisible God is really there, in Jesus Christ, the invisible God reveals himself to us, reconciling the world to himself. I've never forgotten someone saying to me when I was uh, at university, he said, the, the best way of expressing this is just say, if you want to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. God's invisible, 
If you want to know how to know him, where he has made himself known, go to the person of Jesus Christ and you will see him there. So how do we put the second commandment into practice? Well, first of all, we need to smash our God's substitutes. It was a pretty stern word to Israel, wasn't it? They were to smash the God's substitutes that were in the land that was to be given to them. In the people of God, there were to be no God's substitutes, no alternatives to the true God. It would have been bad for them and bad for their national life if this has been so. And you and I, we too need to take direct action against our God's substitutes. We have to eradicate worship of alternatives in our lives. The followers of Jesus are told frequently in the New Testament to keep themselves from idols. There's no blending here. There's no taking a a piece of that and a piece of this and matching it with mixing it in with worship in our lives, with worship of of the true God. You can't do a potpourri with worship. Martin Luther once helpfully said, anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. And that's the challenge for you and me here from the second commandment. What is that for you? On what does your heart rely and depend that is not God? If it is not the true God, know that it will surely fail you, that it has not earned your heart, that it does not deserve the worship you are giving it. We might also say, what is it that you make sacrifices for? What do you make sacrifices for? That is likely your idol. And you need to take action in this place. Now, the complication is that some idols, some things that we have as idols are not idols in and of themselves. But they can become idols if they take up that God place in our hearts, if they answer, we fill our God's stomachs with them. For contemporary Australians, we know the list. It might be our property, our sport, our travel, our experiences, our work. A good question might be, what is it that I would give up meeting with God's people for? What is it that I would do as an alternative to listening to God's word? The challenge for us is to put these things back in their place as good but not God. In one sense, it would be easier if we were giving up the worship of Baal or Dagon. We just have no truck with those. They are not good. But when we have something that is in its right place is a good thing as God, we need to, we need to return it to that good place. We need to detach our hearts from it. But make no mistake, the idolatry of things is a real threat to your spiritual life. It's a cancer on the soul. And you need immediate oncology. So smash your God substitutes. Which one of them will you smash this week? But secondly, we need to listen to who God says he really is. Find him where he says he will indeed be. This is part of our treatment. To listen to who the true God says he really is. We don't want to know a God who is just a projection of our own prejudices and preferences. What kind of God would that be? We want God to decide who he should be, 
we need to then pay attention to what he tells us about himself. Which is why worship of the Lord our God involves listening to his word. Each week, we don't gather around an idol, but we open and read a book. That's why what I do here is not just giving you my opinions. This isn't just me reading out my blog or something like that, right? This, is, this isn't my radio show. This is explaining the scriptures. This is trying to sit under the word of God as an antidote to our temptation to idolatry. To follow the second commandment is to do what we're doing here. We cannot find him when we look for him, but God speaks to us when we come to listen to him. And he reveals himself especially and finally in Jesus, whom the New Testament calls the exact representation of his being. But I want to challenge you. Are you really listening to him? Are you ready to worship God as he reveals himself? Now, a sure sign to me that a person is listening carefully is whether they find God comfortable. God is not domestic and comfortable. If encountering the word of God never makes you feel uncomfortable, then I wonder whether you're actually listening. God is the God of comfort in all our trials, but he is not like some divine pair of slippers that we ease into. If you think God is easy then I do wonder if you're really wrestling with the real one. If you think God would vote the same way as you do, or live in the same suburb that you do, or is from the same racial or ethnic background as you, or speaks the same language that you speak, then you need to listen more carefully, for you are close to making an idol. And do you really know him in his word? You know, I think the biggest threat to contemporary Christianity is not progressive governments, but Christian ignorance of the word of God. We know him far too faintly. We give his word far too little time. We complain that he is distant, but we do not come to where he has made himself known. We're too busy or too lazy or too distracted. The second commandment then not only warns us against idols, it invites us to listen intently for the true God, immortal and invisible, the creator, the redeemer, the one who loves us, who really loves us as no idol ever could. He has spoken his words of life and love, of hope and peace that you and I might live. So let's listen to what he has to say. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.